You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show once again. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. This is episode 83 of season 3, episode 148 of this podcast. It is June 22nd, 2021, and a Tuesday. And for this episode, we want to talk about children of men and conspiracy theories. In the 2006 Alfonso Cuaron sci-fi flick, Children of Men, Clive Owen plays Theo Farron a man tasked with delivering the last young woman on earth capable of having children to a place where she will be protected and looked after. For some unknown reason, everyone else has become infertile. The film is set in the not-so-distant future, the year 2027, and the premise is gripping. With years having passed since the last child was born, humanity has devolved into chaos and disorder at the realization of the finitude of mankind. And now that a woman has been found who is somehow fertile when none of the other women on earth are, everyone wants to use her for their own political aims. He alone who owns the youth gains the future, as Adolf Hitler is often quoted, whether rightly or wrongly, I don't know. Fast forward to the present, or rewind to the present. I suppose it all depends on whether you work from when this movie was made and released, or else work from when the film is set to take place. This past weekend, in celebration of Father's Day, I introduced my own seven children to another apocalyptic vision of the future, or should I say, last year. I had forgotten that the 2002 film Reign of Fire, starring Matthew McConaughey, Christian Bale, and Gerard Butler, was set in the year 2020. Funny that, or at least we all thought so. But here too, the subject of having children to continue on the human race features prominently, and the importance of fathers to this plot also cannot be understated. Just look at Christian Bale's character, Quinn Abercrombie. Or, for a darker example, consider the final dragon needing slain. Psalm 127, 3-5 reads as follows. Behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I was having a conversation with... A friend of mine who is a pharmacist here this past weekend, we both went to a wedding and we're standing in the margins after the ceremony before the reception had begun officially. And for some reason, we started talking about the COVID vaccine. Now, he's had to administer quite a few COVID vaccines. And so he has a lot of time and opportunity to interact with people who want the vaccine, or at least, at a minimum, they want the freedom of movement that comes with 
the vaccine. If you get the vaccine, you can take off the mask. If you get the vaccine, you can come to these public events that are closed off to people who are not vaccinated. If you get the vaccine, you can be a part of society again, and you don't have to suffer in solitary confinement indefinitely. So we're talking about the vaccine, and I'm asking him if he knows much about these concerns with regards to fertility. Why is it that women who are pregnant or may become pregnant are warned against taking this vaccine? And what he told me, as I understand it, as I remember it, was very interesting. He said that there is a spike protein that is very much important, very central to carrying a baby to term, to the fertilization process, and to that baby, that unborn child, being carried to term successfully, healthy, born. There's a spike protein that looks very much like coronavirus. And with the way this vaccine, these vaccines, or some of these vaccines, are teaching the body to fight COVID, the body might just learn to fight the pregnancy as if that pregnancy is a virus. So women who are or may become pregnant might find themselves miscarrying over and over and over again as their body's immune system is taught to not only fight COVID, but to fight pregnancy, to train its white blood cells and internal defenses on a child, an unborn child. And as we're talking about this, me and my friend, the pharmacist, I posited that it would not surprise me so much if one of the conspiracy theories that I have heard from friends, acquaintances, that Bill Gates and other such billionaire philanthropists, supposedly philanthropic, I should say, persons, have touted the need to reduce the population on this planet. We need to reduce the number of consumers. For more on where that idea comes from, look up Thomas Malthus. I'm not going to deep dive into Thomas Malthus, but go look him up. M-A-L-T-H-U-S. Thomas Malthus and his idea of scarce resources, war, famine, pestilence, disease, wreaking a terrible havoc on the planet if people didn't slow down, stop having so many children. Fast forward to the eugenics movement, and it wasn't enough to just have fewer children. We also want to be careful to only allow selective breeding of the best specimens of humanity. Criminals, no. Insofar as criminality might be a genetic thing or it might have a genetic component, we don't want criminals reproducing. We don't want them having children and passing on their criminality through their genes to their offspring. Insofar as disease is genetic sometimes, and we have certain dispositions towards heart disease, cancer, etc. 
We don't want people who have diseases and who would pass on genetics, which cause a predisposition for diseases. We don't want to allow those people to reproduce. Mental illness and developmental disorders. We don't want people who have mental illness and developmental disorders to reproduce because they're going to reproduce after their kind. They're going to reproduce more people with mental illness. And that's not good for society. That's disturbing. We don't like people with emotional problems and mental illness roaming our streets and cluttering up the works. So we're going to get those people to stop reproducing, remove them from the gene pool. How about inferior races? It stands to reason that if these things are genetic and if bad genes are what cause criminality and illness and developmental disorders and poverty, if those things are what cause the suffering in the world, and if we can eliminate those things by eliminating the ability of people who have those traits to reproduce, then it stands to reason that the race which is most fit to survive will be doing the best job of removing those traits from its gene pool. And it also further stands to reason that certain races have done a better job of this than others, and those races will inherit the earth. And the races which have not done such a great job of this maybe don't need to have children anymore. Maybe they don't need to reproduce anymore. And a hundred years ago, eugenics took the form of sometimes forcibly sterilizing people, performing surgeries on them against their will, against their wishes, against their knowledge even. While they're under the knife, if they're in there for a C-section, let's just go ahead and tie their tubes if we don't think they should be having any more children. Let's go ahead and push for them to get scheduled for a vasectomy or to have their fallopian tubes removed. Let's go ahead and nip this in the bud, literally, like pruning a garden. Only in this case, the gardeners are presuming that the whole of humanity is so much houseplantery. They are the gardeners. Everyone else might as well be a shrubbery. Might as well be some roses that have gotten a little out of control. Might as well be some petunias or some weeds that need to be pulled up by the roots. See, the disturbing thing about eugenics is that it wasn't a science fiction novel. Eugenics, if you read the history, read Edwin Black's War Against the Weak. It was not an idea alone. It was an idea that led to action. And the way that the people who carried out these actions were able to justify themselves in doing these things and violating the people that came under their gaze, their power, is that they told themselves they were saving the planet. This was for public health. This was for the common good. This was for the sake of humanity. They were saving the planet. They were saving humanity. Future generations would thank them for having removed 
the germplasm from society. That joke, which some of you may have heard, that certain people's gene pools could use some chlorine, belies a certain attitude which was entirely common to the eugenics movement proponents a hundred years ago in the U.S., in the U.K., and then most darkly in Germany. The Nazis took these ideas and they ran with them. And it wasn't enough to just sterilize people that they didn't want reproducing. They rounded up and exterminated living specimens, which they believed were not fit to survive. They embraced the ideas of Darwin, and in their hearts they said there is no God, and they became very foolish. Their hearts were darkened, their deeds were dark, and they hated what was good because it stood in the way of what they thought was best. They became their own gods. It was satanic, it was evil, but the people who were carrying these things out didn't think that they were evil, and they didn't think that what they were doing was so wrong. They suppressed that conviction in favor of very secular, very godless ideas about the world, about the universe, about humanity and our place in the world. You see, if we don't believe that there is a God, then it's up to us to save the planet. But if we believe in the God of the Bible, then the destruction of this world is a foregone conclusion. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And it will happen in God's good timing. And in the meantime, God upholds the earth. He rules and reigns. And only what he allows to happen will happen. And it will only happen when he allows it to happen. That doesn't mean that everything that God allows to happen is good, but it is good and God is good regardless what happens that God allows certain things to happen so as to glorify himself and so as to work all things to the good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. The things that might work to the good may not in themselves be so good, but God is good. And he can use even the dark deeds of men in fiction and in nonfiction to accomplish his purposes. Joseph replies at one point in Genesis when he's reunited with his brothers in Egypt now having risen to the highest place of authority, short of Pharaoh himself, Joseph forgives his brothers and he tells them that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And God has worked for the good. Through their evil action, God saves his people from famine, from death. God miraculously sends this dream to Pharaoh in which the famine that is coming is predicted and also an escape route to everyone dying in the famine is made clear. Malthus and his ideas make no allowances for that possibility of divine intervention, but we should. That little bit I read for you from Psalm 127, 3 to 5, actually starts out at the beginning of the chapter, at the beginning of Psalm 127, unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it 
labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So interesting to me as a father of seven with an eighth on the way, that this is the first half of the chapter. This is the first half of the psalm wherein God says that children are a heritage from him. Now, C.S. Lewis, I've read, didn't think that the psalms were inspired. He thought that they were just songs about God written from a human perspective. I disagree with that. Even if you take his perspective as your own, this is a song of a sense of Solomon, King Solomon. And Solomon, in all his wisdom, says, unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And then he goes on in verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I, for one, will take a step back from the abstract, from the macro, from the 30,000-foot view of these things for a moment and just talk very personally. My wife is not feeling especially well here the past several weeks since we found out we were pregnant again. Pregnancy is not fun. I don't know if you know that, but pregnancy is not fun. The expectation of this good gift at the end of pregnancy is fun, and that is a delight and a joy, sometimes scary, but overall, at the end of the day, children are a heritage from Yahweh, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. And so it feels like Christmas is getting closer when you're expecting a child, at least in our house. We feel like it's Christmas, but even better than that, this gift of a life, this miracle that God knits together, this person, as we're going about our business and we can't see them, God is making this little person. How does he do it? I'd like to ask him someday, but the fact is that he does it, and it's wonderful, and it's miraculous, and it's mind-boggling, and science might be able to do all kinds of things with a microscope. They might be able to describe what they're observing, what they can see, but what about what they can't see? What about why? What about reason and purpose for this happening? Science has no notion of that. It just happens. It's just random. And when science thinks that things are just random and they happen, that introduces an element of chaos to our perception of the universe. We think of the universe as being chaos. Things just happen for no reason, without order. Now, let me tell you, as a father of seven children with an eighth on the way, sometimes chaos is a good word to describe What happens in our house? Sometimes it is pandemonium. Sometimes this one over here is crying because we can't find his pacifier and he wants some milk, but he doesn't like that milk for some reason. Who knows why? It tastes funny. That one over there is crying because his sister was being clumsy and bumped into him or took his toy, and now he's angry. She wants to play with him, and he doesn't want to share his Paw Patrol toys today. He doesn't feel like it. 
And that one over there is trying to sneak off because he's supposed to be working on his math. He doesn't really want to work on his math. This one here is complaining about having to do the dishes or sweep the floor or wipe down the countertops again. And Mama is not feeling especially well. And Dad just got home from work, so he's tired. And it's all happening at once. Chaos. Well, maybe. Maybe for a moment, but the glory is in the struggle. I like a good challenge. I think real men do. I think all real men who embrace their masculinity, who embrace their God-given role and purpose as men, embrace challenges, and they don't shy away from them. And as such, I look at that chaos in my calmer moments, maybe not always in the moment, but when I reflect on them afterward, when the house is quiet again, early in the morning before everyone else wakes up, I look at those challenges as being glorious, as glorious opportunities for me as a father to strive to have my faith be found genuine, the tested genuineness of my faith be confirmed. We think of testing here the past year and a half, and we think of COVID. We think of a relief when the test comes back positive, maybe. You were exposed to somebody, and now do you have it? You think of somebody who might have a lump, a mysterious growth, some dark splotch on a scan, and now the doctors want to go in and verify, is it cancer? They want to take a sample of the tissue, send it off for testing, and you're waiting. What is it? When you get a certain set of results back, the relief is palpable and real and very great. You get another set of results back, and you have a very different response. So also, when our faith is tested, what are the results? Do we get results back which say it's terminal? Or, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your place of rest. I'm not saying that having children is the only way. I'm just saying, for me particularly, this is my lot. This is my blessing. For some, maybe singleness is a blessing. For some, maybe having no no children is a blessing. For me, having a large family is a blessing. God doesn't give everyone large families, but he's given us what in our day is considered a large family. And it is difficult, and it is tiring, and it is trying. Sometimes it's discouraging. Sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes it is the funniest, most joyful, entertaining thing you can imagine. And sometimes I'm reminded of how entertaining my children are when I see them through other people's eyes. We were at the dentist yesterday taking the younger five children, the older two had already been to the dentist last week. They got their appointments out of the way. But we had finished up our appointments and everything went smoothly. The kids did great. Lauren helped bounce back and forth to make sure the kids were doing okay. The dentist's office had a TV with some Netflix and they watched some movies as they were waiting for their appointment to come up or for their brothers and their sister to finish up their appointments. As we are leaving the office, however, an elderly lady 
was coming up the stairs. And we're coming out the door as she's about to come in the door. And my second to youngest son, notwithstanding the child who is growing in Lauren's womb right now, my second to youngest son, Enoch Theophilus Mullet, smiles brightly at this elderly lady. He's got this toy, this little prize. I don't know what you call it, but he's got this prize for having done well been patient, been kind, been easy to work with. He holds it up for this elderly lady to see. He says, if you be good too, you can have a prize like this. And he was just beside himself. He's five. He's beside himself, smiling up at her. And she was just fit to be tied. She thought that was the funniest, sweetest little thing. She must have been in her mid-70s maybe 80s, but that's a blessing. And part of what I find so interesting about that movie I was telling you about at the beginning of this episode, Children of Men, is that idea, that notion, extrapolating out. If all of a sudden people are not able to have children anymore, they can't get pregnant, they can't carry the baby to term and have a live delivery, for whatever reason, if all of a sudden that happens because this vaccine was playing God or accidentally had repercussions that we didn't test out because we were in such a panic or was a eugenics movement ploy ambition to save the world from the germ plasm of society like you and me, whatever it is, right? If the end result is that women can't have children, except for the select few who decided they weren't going to get this vaccine, what will the effect be on society for there to not be little children? What does that do to our interactions? I don't think that marriages on the rocks, which only stay together for the children, are doing right. And I'm not saying that they should get separated. I'm saying they should stay together for better reasons than just doing it for the children. Do it for the kids. Stay together. And then as soon as the kids all grow up and move out, then you get a divorce? I don't think so. At that point, once your children have grown up and moved out, then your responsibility to your spouse is at an end because your first loyalty is to your children? That's backwards. That's upside down. That's inside out. You need some reorganizing of your priorities. You are faithful to your spouse because God commands it. Because... You love God because you are not so great and perfect either. The problem is not always with your spouse. The problem is sometimes with you. Or again, to bring this personal to my situation, the problem is not always with my wife when I'm frustrated with my wife. Sometimes the problem is me, my own selfishness, my own immaturity, my own grumpiness. Yesterday, I get up, I go downstairs, and I'm going to get myself some coffee. And my son Eli, who I'm taking to New Mexico, Thursday, God willing, for his birthday Friday. My son Eli has been making me coffee. He gets everything ready the night before. He grinds the beans, puts them in the Ninja. We have a Ninja coffee maker, which I think is awesome, by the way. But he puts the beans and the coffee maker. He gets the water all filled up, makes sure that the time is set to 5 a.m. tomorrow. And then 5 a.m., my coffee maker starts brewing coffee. 
because Eli sets it the night before. But yesterday morning I get up, I go downstairs, and there's no coffee. And not only is there no coffee brewed, but there are no coffee beans at all. We're out. We're out of coffee. When my son gets the coffee ready the night before, that is not something I'm entitled to. That's kind that he does it. I ask him to do it, and he does it faithfully for the most part. Sometimes he forgets. But the fact that he does it at all is a blessing. When he doesn't do it, I shouldn't be acting like I'm entitled and acting like a brat and throwing a fit. It's early in the morning. I haven't had my coffee. I'm very dependent. I'm chemically dependent on coffee. I'm addicted to coffee. I'll admit it. You heard it here, folks. But that doesn't excuse me being grouchy, grumpy, having an entitled mindset and attitude towards him. My wife wakes up. Hey, you forgot to order coffee. I get crabby with her. Wait wait a second. Hold on a second. Is that her fault that I got crabby with her over her forgetting to order coffee? Because she doesn't drink coffee, by the way. She used to. She used to drink maybe not as much coffee as I did, but quite a lot. And then with health issues, one of the things that we were advised was that she should drink less coffee. She should not drink coffee. She should drink something else. Plus with being pregnant, you shouldn't be drinking a lot of coffee anyway. So she's doing tea. She drinks tea. I drink coffee. And so sometimes she doesn't notice when we're about out of coffee. And if Eli is getting the coffee maker prepped the night before and he forgets to tell her, she forgets to ask and check, I might have to run to the grocery store early in the morning and get my own damn coffee. What a pity. Boo-hoo. Right? Of course right. So shame on me for being grouchy with my wife and my children yesterday morning, my first day of vacation, because I've got no coffee. If we think that life is better when it's all about us, we need a reality check. We really do. Because in that moment, I might not be feeling particularly blessed when I'd like a cup of coffee, please, and there isn't any, not without some work, not without getting all dressed up, running to the store, going through the store, running home. I might not be feeling particularly blessed, but Here's the thing. Here's the hidden gem. Part of the blessing in that also is that I now have the opportunity to see myself for who I really am. I now have the opportunity to realize that maybe, just maybe, I'm being a selfish jerk sometimes. And I need to work on that. And I need to not be a selfish jerk. If I'm going to be a good example to my sons and my daughter and my wife and other people, then I'm being tested. The tested genuineness of my faith is having some results. I get to look at them. I went to the dentist yesterday with my wife and our five younger kids, and I had an appointment too for the first time in probably about three years, two and a half years. And now I have an appointment for next Tuesday as well with the dentist. I get to see the dentist twice in two weeks. I could have seen the dentist today, but I thought two days in a row... On my vacation, two out of five days going to the dentist just really does not sound like a good vacation to me. If you ask me, I think I'll put off this appointment one more week. Next week is just as well or better, but I have a pretty good-sized cavity in one of my teeth, just one, just one cavity, 
And I think I had the same cavity almost three years ago, but didn't do anything with it. I was too busy. Or at least I told myself I was too busy. I didn't prioritize getting it taken care of. And that's on me. It's not on anybody else. It's not my wife's fault, not my kid's fault. It's on me. But one of the things the dentist was telling me is that he's pointing at the x-ray. He's showing me where the cavity is that they can tell for sure and what might be the cavity and decay and corruption of the tooth, but it might not. And we're not sure how bad it is until we get in there and we start working on it. You might need a root canal. We really won't know until we get in there and start cleaning it up. If we get in there and start cleaning it up and it's worse than what we can fix with a uh, crown or canal cap or whatever it's called, then we might just have to go ahead and give you a root canal. Mm. Wow, that sounds like not fun. That sounds like not my idea of a good time. And yet, it is what it is, right? Whether we look at it on the x-ray or we don't, it's there. And if you don't figure out a way to draw that out and look at it for what it is, how can you ever treat it, right? Yesterday morning, I wake up, no coffee. How do I react in that moment? Well, if I'm by myself, the world is all about me. Maybe it's like not having an x-ray on a tooth that left alone is going to be abscessed. Untreated, it's going to lead to a lot of pain sooner or later because it is what it is now. Your choice is not for it to be a real thing or not. Your choice is to recognize it for what it is and deal with it or not. And if you don't deal with it, it's going to get worse and worse. So the blessing here with having a wife and children sometimes is that we get a clearer picture. We get a more high-resolution picture. Reign of Fire, there's this scene where the Americans from Kentucky show up. They've flown across the ocean to England, and they are at the doorstep of this fortress of British holdouts, survivors of this plague of dragons which has enveloped the earth. And they've come there, not to give anything away. You should watch the movie. It's one of my favorites. But not to give anything away, they are there to slay some dragons, to slay one dragon in particular. But this dragon shows up shortly after they get to this fortress. And so they have different members of their team that are going to do different things. And three guys take off on motorcycles. And they're going to drop these beacons to use some kind of a 3D imaging technology to triangulate the position of these dragons in real time so they can track them, so they can see where their so-called archangels are dropping in, where the dragon is, so they can kill it. They need to be able to see it if they're going to kill it. This is not how to train your dragon, by the way. This is how to slay your dragon, which I think is a far better premise. Not a huge fan of how to train your dragon. It's funny, it's cute at times, but I much more prefer how to slay your dragon. Dragons are meant to be slain. But they drop these beacons and two beacons get successfully planted. And then the guy who's running out there, riding out there to plant the third one ends up becoming a snack for the dragon before he can plant it. So then Quinn, played by Christian Bale, one of my favorite actors, Quinn 
hops on a horse, rides out there epically, finds the beacon, sets it up, turns it on, boom, now we can see. There's the dragon. Triangulate its position. Well, it's like that sometimes with children and a wife. You triangulate the dragon in your heart. And sometimes those different personalities in your household help you to key in on something that needs work. Sometimes they give you a higher resolution picture of what you need to be bringing to the good Lord and asking him to work on in you. Sometimes you get a higher resolution of that cavity, that tooth, which is, before you know it, going to be impacted. It's going to be an abscess, and if untreated, it's going to go right to your brain. And then what? That toothache you have when things don't go the way that you want them to, when it's not going according to plan, when it feels chaotic, and now what are you going to do? How are you going to bring this into order, into as much order as it needs? You will never get complete 100% order, so maybe your problem is your expectations are unrealistic. But you should have some order. You should have peace in the home, shalom in the home, as my friend Chad Cahoon put it, and I'm sure he heard it somewhere else, but he's the place where I heard it. So I think Chad Cahoon, when I think shalom in the home, and it rhymes, so it's easy to think of sometimes when my house is being a little bit chaotic. God desires shalom in the home. My friend Chad said, and he's right. It's a good way to put it. How do we perpetuate that? How do we establish our home? Not just build a house, but establish it. We establish it with wisdom. You live with your wife in an understanding way. Children are called to obey their father and mother and the Lord for this is right, and to honor their father and mother, yes. But also, what is my responsibility as a father? To not exasperate my children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Interesting. It's so interesting that that is in there. And I look at it differently now than I did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I would try and remind my parents of that, by the way. That got me into trouble a couple of times. Mom, Dad, yeah, it says children obey your parents, but it also says fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke your children to wrath. Pro tip, kids out there, if I've got any kids, teenagers, listening to this podcast, I've got a pro tip for you. Don't tell your kids. Don't, 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 don't do that. Don't tell your parents that verse. You key in on your part of that equation as the child in the parent-child relationship, and your parents will be convicted. Trust me. If you are doing your part in that equation, your parents will feel convicted, and they will realize that they are provoking you to wrath unnecessarily by some of the things that they do. They're being unintentionally or intentionally sometimes annoying. Sometimes your parents are annoying because they're not perfect. You're not perfect. They're not perfect. But in God's good grace and his good design, his good plan, his purpose is for us to, like Grant told Lincoln, endeavor to not annoy one another in that famous passage on what love is and is not in Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians, it says, love is not rude. Love is not easily offended, but it's also not rude. If we're intentionally being rude to our sister, and I'm thinking of one of my sons in particular right now, who loves getting under the skin of his brothers, 
and his sister. He loves it. He loves it. You can hear it in his laugh when he knows that he has got their goat. We are not supposed to be rude. Love is not rude. And to be fair, and I could say this to my daughter especially for some reason. I don't know why. seems like girls are more often, not only, but more often and more exaggeratedly, easily irritated, irritable. We are not supposed to be easily irritated and irritable. Father's Day was this past Sunday. I'm a terrible son because I forgot to call my dad. Got busy playing a pirate game with my sons. I got focused on being a father to my sons, and I forgot to be a good son to my dad. But dad, if you're listening, happy Father's Day. We are supposed to be not annoying on purpose to each other. Not irritating. That's rude. It's rude to be annoying on purpose. That That is the definition of rudeness. When you're on purpose annoying, when you don't need to be. But also, we are called to not be irritable, to not be easily irritated, to keep no record of wrongs. So as a father, I need to keep that in mind. I need to bear that in mind. When my child has just got a scratch and he wants a Band-Aid, when my daughter's room is not clean, and it needs to be. It does. It does need to be clean. When my son wants his pacifier, and he doesn't like that milk we just gave him because it tastes funny. Well, it smells fine, but it tastes funny, so he's not having it. When my wife is not feeling well, when I don't have coffee in the morning, I need to recalibrate. Not recalibrate them always, Sometimes, as the father, as the head of my home, as the leader of my home, I do need to recalibrate my home in terms of leading and directing, correcting, instructing my family. But sometimes I do that well by starting with myself. Sometimes I do that well by owning my own human frailty and admitting there is a God in heaven and I am not him. I am not that holy, righteous God who is perfect in all his ways, who executes judgment only always perfectly. Sometimes I have poor judgment. Life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid, as John Wayne once said. Sometimes I make these issues more difficult than they have to be, more difficult than they inherently are by being a petulant child in my response. But... Any way you slice it, the opportunity to see that, to triangulate that dragon is a blessing. It's a blessing from the Lord. It truly is. And we have to look at it that way. If we choose to look at it that way, if we choose to embrace the breadth and the depth of what James is talking about in the New Testament, when he says, consider it Pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. When we embrace that from a place of contentedness and from a desire to have harmony with a God of contentment who has in his sovereign wisdom and goodness ordained that these be our circumstances for some purpose, to test us, to try us, because the scriptures say that he tests the righteous. Not to destroy us, but to build us up, to refine us, to grow us, to mature us, because he's a good father. When we embrace that passage, it helps us to get the results from the test that 
we need to want, we should want, we should desire, we should pursue, we should endeavor, we should grapple with, to take hold of, to possess, to embody, to have those traits, those qualities, those characteristics be almost effortless, like muscle memory, but it gives more grace. We're going to leave it there. That's all for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Children are a blessing. Children are a heritage from Yahweh, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.